Okay, thank you. Uh, when we first, when I first, Deborah and I first got here, Ben was here, and he said, "I'm looking forward to hearing you preach. It's been a while. I, I haven't heard you much lately." And I said, "Yeah, I know. I, I've got some feelings that uh, indicate it's been a while." You would think if you did something as long as I was preaching, it'd just be like, you know, getting back on a bicycle and you just start off again. Uh, we chatted a bit and went apart and got back together and Ben said, it's butterflies. That's, that's what they call what you're feeling right now. Uh, not quite anxiety, but almost, and that seems odd in a way, uh, but I, if, if nothing else, I need to be honest and somewhat transparent. Uh, bringing a word from the Lord to God's people is no light matter. Uh, especially from this chapter, Exodus chapter 19. If you want to open your Bibles and follow along, uh, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation of late. It's sort of become my favorite for my own personal devotional reading each morning, and uh, th that's, that's just where I'll be reading from. Exodus 19, beginning with verse 1, exactly two months, so 56 days, Israel operated under a lunar calendar. Every month had 28 days, and Every so often they would add some extra days to get their lunar calendar aligned to the solar reckoning of time. And this is just the first indicator that we're modern people listening to an ancient document. And sometimes there are some things that rub us a bit odd and we just need to recognize much has happened from then till now. 56 days they've been on this meandering journey out of Egypt. There were faster routes, but God intentionally chose not to take some of those because of the people they would have encountered would have been fierce enemies, and he suspected they would fail miserably and not arrive. But more significant than the enemies around them, we need to recognize in our reading of Exodus, they don't really know God yet. In actuality, the majority of their interactions with him have been mediated through 
Moses. They saw his strong actions against Egypt. They experienced deliverance. They saw the pillar of fire at night and the cloud in the daytime. But all they've heard from God so far has been mediated. In Exodus 19 is when God has them finally at the foot of the mountain. Now see, Pharaoh thought this desire to go out into the wilderness and worship God was a ruse. It was a plot. It was a plan to escape from their captivity. We know that these descendants of Abraham have spent 430 years in Egypt. The majority, overwhelming majority of that time, they've been slaves. Not all of the time, not 430 years of captivity. Because during the lifetime of Joseph, they actually were a privileged people. They had the best of the land. They were the shepherds. They were the herdsmen. They were the ones in Goshen who had incredible peace. And their numbers flourished so much that when a later Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph came to power, he started taking note of this clump of people in his nation and realized their numbers were rivaling those of the Egyptians by birth. And he became paranoid and began to take actions to reduce their growth rate by having their sons killed. In my first master's program, there was an older professor who spoke with somewhat of a monotone. So much so that when students would get together during our break, there were some who could mimic him. And it was always in a very deep but monotonous voice. And for many of them, it just longed to sleep. And some of you this morning must have had long nights because you already seem to be on the edge of that. And I want to apologize if I'm being a bit monotone. Rex Turner Sr. was his name, and his material, though, was so deep and so rich that I didn't find myself battling sleep with him. His tests were difficult. And so I wanted to stay at the best on my note-taking. There won't be a test written. But even in this chapter, there is this sense of testing. 
God's been testing the people that he called out of Egypt. But Rex Turner Sr., the reason I went on that little rabbit trail with him, had this famous slogan that stuck with me out of prophetic classes, the classes on the prophets. It didn't take God long to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him a long time to get Egypt out of Israel. Captivity can produce a worldview that controls and manipulates and challenges new realities. Fifty six days they've been out of Egypt. But already we've encountered times when some would say, you know, it really would have been better if we had never left there. Maybe we ought to go back there. Has God shown them enough of himself that they shouldn't have been asking that at this stage? I don't plan to answer that question for you. But I think it's a part of what you're reading of the first 18 chapters of Exodus ought to explore. What do they really know about God? A lot of our discussion in daily living is about we we ought to have more faith. As though the strength of our faith is the hinge issue. Wherefore, the book of Exodus, the linchpin isn't Israel's faith, it's in what? In whom? Are they trusting in themselves? Are they trusting in Moses? Are they trusting in Pharaoh? Are they trusting in Egypt? Are they trusting in God? And if they say it's God, then what is he really like? I've said too much. I want you to hear this chapter. I want you to hear from God himself. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob, Jacob's offspring. Announce it to the descendants of Israel, his new name, that covenant name. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. 
You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain, called together the elders of the people, and told them everything Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people responded together, We will do everything Yahweh has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to Yahweh. Then Yahweh says to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud. Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they'll always trust you. Moses told Yahweh what the people had said. God, they're, they're going to do whatever you say. Then Yahweh told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they're ready on the third day. For on that day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful, do not go up the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on the mountain. So, the third day, there's going to be this incredible gathering and there are certain things they've got to do to get ready. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down the mountain. on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln and the whole mountain 
shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. Yahweh came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. Then Yahweh told Moses, go back down and warn the people to not break through the boundaries to see Yahweh or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to Yahweh must purify themselves so that Yahweh does not break out and destroy them. But Yahweh, Moses protested, the people cannot come up on Mount Sinai. You've already warned us. You told me, mark off a boundary and all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But Yahweh said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priest or the people break through to approach Yahweh or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what Yahweh had said. What a terrible place to tell a preacher that that's that's how far you're supposed to go today. You get us right there to the point and you say, okay, you got to come back next week. And, and John's going to be preaching. So he can take it up from here. He didn't schedule it. Greg did. So, so he's the one with a sense of humor or irony or no. The three of us are going to be tag teaming this. And so there may be some unevenness. There will certainly be different styles. It was 1992 when Deborah and I first moved to Murfreesboro to work with this church. Some of you are thinking, that was before I was born. Yes, that is true. Uh, Deborah taught the two and three year old so long that she had children of children in her classes. In all those years, I don't think I've ever preached from this chapter. I spent most of my time in the New Testament, the Gospels, Paul's letters, the book of Acts, some in Genesis, some from Exodus. But this is a powerful account of God revealing Himself and what He's really like. And there's plenty to do in this chapter without rushing on to the next chapter. One of the books that I was reading in, in trying to compare some of what I was hearing from this to what others might be hearing is a Theology and Exodus book by Gowan. 
think G-O-W-A-N is the guy's last name. I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, I'll be responsible for any mistakes, not, not him or anyone else. Um, guy must have had some preaching time because he uses an alliteration. Uh, he believes that from Genesis 15 all the way to the end of, I mean Exodus 15 all the way to the end of Exodus, there's this section where God's drawing the people ever closer. 15 up through 18, he's showing his care. It's, it's during those 56 days in the wilderness that they encounter the practical problems. A large group of people traveling across a wilderness are going to encounter. Moses has traversed this area going from the mountain to Egypt years earlier, potentially, months for sure. But he hadn't taken such a large group of people. And his journey likely would have been more direct, and this has been quite circuitous by God's own leading where are you going to get water where are you going to get food what are you going to do when the Amalekites or other enemies come and try to attack this group of former not soldiers, slaves who've escaped. Are they going to trust their own abilities? Their struggle in this season of testing by God is they keep looking to Moses, the one who's their mediator. To be the answer. And even Moses has his own struggles with the reality that he doesn't have the answers. God's testing isn't so much to see how far they'll go before they fail as it is to nurture a sense of dependence upon himself. And so this first section is God's care. Be careful when you're reading Exodus that you don't draw numbers back into it. There's this word. It's the same word in the Hebrew in Exodus as in numbers of murmuring. And in numbers, it always carries this negative connotation. And because many of us have already read Numbers, it's likely we read Exodus with that edge. But interestingly, God doesn't respond to their complaints about being thirsty and being hungry in Exodus. 
the way he does in Numbers. Which is one of the challenges of us as Bible students. One of the ways many of us were taught to do our study is to get our concordance out. You know, it's that real big heavy book for those of you who don't have a clue what it is. It, it, it's a weight training book. And you look up a word like murmur, and it'll give you every time that word is ever used in Scripture. If it's an exhaustive concordance, it's going to exhaust you running all those references. For the younger generation, why would you want a book like that? I mean, I just pull out my phone, and, and I do the, the, the little search, you know, that magnifying glass in the upper right-hand corner, John. You know, you, you old guys need to really catch up on this and put in the word murmur, and then it'll pop up, all of them. Now, depending on your Bible app, they may not come in order, but they'll, they'll all eventually be in there, maybe, and, and you can run through them. Well, if you did that, you'd find that the passages in Exodus, God's response It's caring. He doesn't debate them. He doesn't chide them, even. He provides. From Egypt to Sinai, he's been a caring God. That word test at the waters of Meribah, Moses says, you tested God. And so we get a foreshadowing. You know, that's that big word when in a movie, they'll give you a scene that seems sort of out of place and you wonder, what's up with that? Something's coming. They're planning a thought in our processes. I read through the chapter. If that was all you knew about God, well, let's say the, the first 19 chapters of Exodus was all you knew about God. What, what would we know about him? Not a theoretical question. I really do want some of you to speak up. You, you, we're not going into full-blown DBS. Don't worry about that. For those of you who are like, oh, no. But I really do want to hear from you. What are some of the things in these 19 chapters that we would know about God? He what? Protector and a provider. Powerful. Deliverer. Just. He's faithful. He's a promise keeper. He hears his people's cries. In Gowan's book, interestingly, his opening section about those first few chapters is he's the absent God. From Israel's side of things, it those 300 plus years of captivity, where's God? 
But through Moses, we begin to encounter a God who hears his people. Not necessarily as they might imagine, but then in some other ways far beyond what they could have ever imagined. He is a powerful God. He's a God that you should not trifle with if you think you're in total power, or anyone else for that matter. When I first read this chapter, thinking about preaching from it, it, it the, the word for me was preparation. That's the reason I used it. Preparing to encounter God. Have you ever gotten an invitation to a big meeting and you started preparing? Uh, Deborah and I were invited to go to an Asia mission forum several years ago. And, you know, you, you got to make sure, is there a a visa required, booking your airline tickets, booking the connecting flights. Uh, that was our one stopover in Japan and our one place where we weren't really adequately prepared was how far it was from the airport to where we were spending that night for our next day's flights. And we certainly didn't have enough Japanese money to pay the cab driver who drove us all that way. The next day, someone helped us who was generous and polite figure out how easy it was to get on the train and ride back to the airport. When you're making a big trip, you anticipate preparing even if you're a total fly by the seat of your pants kind of guy like I am in a lot of ways what are some of the things that people are supposed to do to prepare for God's coming down on the mountain wash their clothes you know, you want, you want some clean clothes. My grandmother helped raise me, and, you know, boys just don't get caught with dirty underwear if you have an accident out there on the bicycle. I, I don't know why that was so important, but it was. Is that what's going on? No, there's this foreshadowing of some ritual cleaning that's coming. I'm thankful that things even here at Stones River are more, I don't really want to use the word casual. But when I started in 92, the, the, the anticipated, you know, I'd have a three-piece suit on and a tie. One of my good friends said he'd gone to a funeral and he really hoped at the end of it everybody would cut their ties off and throw them in the grave with the guy. But that didn't happen. You know, expectations, cultural norms, what, what's expected. The reason I'm thankful for it is people who don't have that level of dress can fit in. And yet, it seems like there's always a but or an and yet, 
How do we guard against becoming too casual? What do you do practically to prepare for a Sunday morning gathering of God's people? Some of that reflects upon the culture you were raised in. All those years of shoulds and people like us do and don't do things like that. Shapes it. Preached at a little church over in Bedford County the first five or so years of my pulpit work. And then we moved up to Southern Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. Shady Grove was the last stop of the red line. I don't know if it still is for the subway. I think it still is. Going down to D.C., we lived mile, mile and a half from the Shady Grove stop of the red line. There were people from all over the world in that congregation in the almost seven years that we were there. A, a group of ladies who worked in wealthy people's homes, cleaning house and cooking and taking care of the children, started coming. And very quickly after they started coming, every week one of them would come forward at the time of the invitation and would ask for prayers, would share something that she appreciated out of the sermon. And it'd be one this week, and a different one next week, and a different one the other week. And they were from the Caribbean islands especially. And it was, it was interesting. I got to know them a little bit better. And I found out, in their culture, if nobody comes forward, it's an insult to the preacher. It's an indication that we don't really like your preaching. And with that background, they were quite disturbed at the lack of encouragement that was coming from the rest of the congregation. How do you deal when cultures clash? We can't answer that question this morning, but it's an interesting dynamic in church leadership. When you meet with someone privately as a shepherd and the conversation begins with, back where I grew up, it's usually an indication that something we're doing here or something that's happening here misaligns, it doesn't fit well with what I've been conditioned to expect. And it's easy to get lost in the surface details. And I find it sometimes helpful to help people explore wh what was the inner purpose, target, hope for that way of doing things.
They're supposed to wash the clothes. What else are they supposed to do to prepare? Be consecrated. There's a $5 word. What does that one mean? <laughs> I'm up here. That's my job. That's what, that's what we're paying you for, brother. <laughs> Consecrate is to set apart, to recognize it's in a restricted use category. But he's not talking about just Moses or Aaron and the priests. He's talking about all the people. What if we came on Sunday mornings with a sense of we're drawing near God as His hand-picked, chosen people for a purpose. Lord, what, what would you have us to do this week in view of our encounter with you? One of the things we absorb from our culture of upbringing, our subcultures of church and churchianity, is sometimes unstated but very strongly believed expectations. Many of us have been groomed into this place where our assessment of the preaching, since I'm only going to do this once a month, I can get away with a little more than I felt like when I was here every Sunday, <laughs> of, of being a bit troublesome maybe, of probing a bit, is, did he say something I've never heard before? Did he, did he reveal something new out of Scripture? Or, if it wasn't new, did he say it in a new way? And that, that's a hard treadmill for a regular weekly preacher-teacher. You have to have a fresh word. And sometimes we, we don't really need something new. We need to be reminded of the old we've been ignoring or willfully disobeying. There is this pervasive indication that commandments are coming. And a part of what prepares them for the coming commandments is will they do what He says now? How many times does Moses go up on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus? Not, not asking for you to answer that. I want, I want you in your own reading to explore some of, some of what's recorded. Some commentators who I think don't have a particularly high view of Scripture feel like it's just a sign that they've mashed a bunch of 
stories together, and the details really aren't that important. In this chapter, he goes up at least far enough to talk to God, and God says, I'm coming back in three days. Get the people ready. And Moses does, and God comes, and Moses sends, and God sends Moses back down to reiterate this one real strong restriction that he's already emphasized in lots of ways. Don't be presumptuous in approaching God. Now, we, we know more of this story, and, and to be honest, this is a little bit surprising, or, you know, it's like, how could they go so far so fast? We know the, the golden calf scenario is, is on the way, but in Exodus, it's at the very end, not the total end, but real close to the end, God's caring for them. God's entering covenant with them. And He's holding them to some high expectations in this covenant relationship. In the biblical world, a covenant like this passage talks about is always between a stronger and a lesser, weaker partner. In their terms and responsibilities. Often it was used in sort of the vassal servant kind of context. If you'll serve me, I'll protect you from the other nations around. Stick with me, I'll keep you safe. Is a crass way of... But for God, there's something more personal... There's something more intimate. Another requirement in preparing them isn't a, a positive action they're supposed to take. It's a restriction. There, there's to be no sexual intercourse for the next couple of days. And we get no more information about that other than that's a requirement. What does that have to do with coming close to God? I'm just going to ask a whole bunch of questions and leave it for John and Greg to answer them. <laughs> you see, payback is, is a, no. Uh, I think there's something of an Intimacy. that's being implied in a very strong and forceful way and there is a sense of anticipation that this relationship with God is going to be far beyond what they could have ever imagined. 
if they're willing. I've probably gone long enough. Some would say far too long. I want to close with a reading from Hebrews chapter 13. Or 12, rather. Hebrews 12. Verse 22. The writer's doing a lot of comparing and contrasting between Israel and the people in relationship with Jesus, the, the kingdom of God language of the Gospels. And it's going on here in Hebrews 12. Verse 18. You've not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Writer of Hebrews is right in this chapter 19 context. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Have you thought about the angels in whose presence you've entered today? To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven? You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Will you pray with me in closing?